All right, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the first chapter this morning. We went through the hard part, and you know, you tell people, I say, yeah, if you're going to read the Bible, don't 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 start from the beginning. You know, people say, I'm going to start at the beginning. I said, don't do that because you're going to get discouraged after the twelfth chapter. So I said, the best thing for you to do is uh, just start in the New Testament. Then I thought, what am I telling people? As soon as they get there. They're confronted with 18 verses of genealogy, right? 17 verses, whatever it is. And, uh, but we saw, I hope we saw, the importance of that genealogy and the fact that it's the kingly line and that as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll be re-emphasizing the point that this is definitely the Gospel of the Kingdom and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so that'll be uh, iterated, reiterated throughout as a central theme of the Gospel of Matthew. So we're really at the 22nd verse at this point. So we got the, the preliminaries out of the way, and that's always very important in setting up the story. So now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Um, so, and then a little later on, we'll also read, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. So this is taken from Isaiah 7.14. Um, and that passage in Isaiah, there's so much uh, rich information in Isaiah. That's why I was hoping I'd get more people to come for Sunday school. But I, it's like pulling teeth, I guess. But I don't, I think there's a lot to be learned in Isaiah. And these verses that all... Uh, Come, we're talking 700 years before Christ, predictive of how he would come in the miraculous way that he came. So we find he shall grow up before him as a, as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground, which is another um, somewhat veiled reference to the virgin birth. A dry ground is an unseminated womb, a virgin's womb. Uh, so there's no seed of man involved with this transaction. It, it's, it's of the Holy Ghost. And uh, if you want any more explanation, uh, you have to wait for eternity, and you still won't understand how such a thing could be. But God did a new thing, didn't he, Amen. in this. So he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, when we shall see him no beauty, that we should desire him. And so that even bespeaks the humble uh, surroundings with which Christ enters the world and comes in. What a surprise it is to find him here at Migdal Edar and to find him there uh, not in a stable necessarily, but uh, in, uh, well, we'll see in here just a bit where he was probably uh, brought forth. But with still humble beginnings, no question about it. And his life throughout uh, represented a life of uh, penury and want. All of this, of course, he did not have to do. He was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich, Second Corinthians 8 tells us. So, all right, so... So Isaiah tells us, and this is the verse that's quoted here in our text, and so it's always wise for us, and I hope that you have like a reference Bible. This is the Schofield reference, and uh, one of the valuable things about the Schofield reference, uh, the notes are good, not all of them, but some of the, uh, most of them are very good, but they're column references, and those column references uh, connect you to uh, these various prophecies and verses, and so uh, you'll see a little... Uh, notation there by the verse and then go to the middle column and then it takes you back to the Old Testament where these things had, had first been spoken and Isaiah is speaking at first now it is reiterated by Matthew's gospel in the uh, record, uh, re recorded event of the birth of Christ so, so Isaiah 7.14 Behold a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel I mentioned this morning an explanation about these different spellings that you have, Emmanuel here with an I, uh, and in the New Testament with an E. And the reason being that the translation, when we go from the English, we're taking it directly from the Hebrew, and the translation and transliteration uh, is different. So then when we get to the New Testament, the words there are taken from the Greek, and uh, so that's different. Uh, so, uh, so there's a different spelling, but really it's the same meaning. So... You want to keep that in mind when you're reading these things. And sometimes it gets confusing when we see the Elias instead of Elijah. 
uh, Jeremiah instead of Jeremiah, uh, or O.C. instead of Hosea in Romans. Uh, but you'll keep all of that in mind and understand that this is uh, part of the technical issues of uh, bringing from one language to the next, at any rate. So we have uh, the same meaning, Emmanuel with an I or an E, which means God is with us. And what, um, what a value the incarnation is to us, that uh, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted as we are yet without sin. So we do have... We have a legal representative and one who came not in the, uh, in the form of an angel but by the seed of Abraham uh, that, uh, that he could succor us in our time of need because he himself has been here and experienced life just as we must. So all of it is quite wonderful, too wonderful for words. And Jeremiah, we have uh, also, what I have to think is also a um, somewhat, well, what can you say, an oblique reference to the virgin birth. The Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. Now the word man here, and there are various words for man, but this one is gibor, and we're talking again Hebrew in the Old Testament. And we know that that name El Gibor, El Gibor, is the mighty, the mighty God, right? And we find that as a name for, or at least an appellation for Jesus, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, 6, the Gibor, and he is indeed uh, the mighty man. But here we have the notion of a woman shall compass a man, and this is a new thing. So uh, new in what way? Well, again, uh, several ways of understanding and dissecting and parsing these words. Some would maintain that what, what what uh, is being described here is the woman in uh, the typical uh, uh, full age, you know, nine months, and the baby's ready to be born, and thus, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the lump, you know, where the baby is and so forth, and thus he, she compasses a man. But uh, there's something here, when the Bible says it's a new thing, that's not a new thing. That's been happening since Adam and Eve. So I don't think this is a new thing. When he says it compasses a man, we're talking about a miracle happening without the man. The man not necessary in this transaction is thus divine. Thus the woman encompasses the man and encompasses uh, and brings forth life without insemination. So, Luke, uh, for he that is mighty hath done to me great things. Uh, so I never, uh, when I see such words, I realize no accident. Vocabulary here is all divinely inspired, and thus God uses the word mighty here to describe the mighty man, the Gibor. And, and thus, if, if we're aware, we go back to these Old Testament references and say, there it is, the, the Gibor, the mighty. And Mary acknowledges that this thing that's happening to her, mighty is he that hath done great things, and holy is his name. All right, so the first indication that there'd be a Savior is found in Genesis 3.15. Uh, any avid Bible student uh, will take a long look at Genesis 3.15 and recognize that here is God coming to the rescue and describing the, the need for salvation and the mode of salvation. Now again, the, these passages are what we call arcane, uh, which means um, mystical. Uh, it demands some interpretation. Esoteric. So we have, to, we have to look a little deeper to understand its meaning. And so uh, this is right after Adam and Eve uh, fall, and, uh, and then God pronounces a curse upon them because of their disobedience. Uh, but he also, at the same time, announces redemption. So he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to the serpent now, the devil, enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So there's going to be this dynamic tension it is something that we experience all the time. Many people very frustrated about the, the condition of the world, the moral condition, or the amoral condition of the world. It is disgusting, and what the world is doing, and, and, and how they're changing all the moral scenery, so to speak, and they've become uh, no more absolutism. Uh, you can't even determine a person's gender anymore. I mean, this is, it, it's ludicrous, but it, it's infuriating at the same time. And yet, I, I counsel people all the time to say, you know, just back down a little bit now. What do you expect from a lost generation? Right. There's a sense in which in the 50s, people didn't know they were lost because they were morally upright 
at least relatively speaking. Now people know they're degenerate. And uh, maybe it's, it might be easier to bring them to Christ, let's hope. So enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. One can expect it. And so the seed of the serpent, well, actually all of us were the seed of the serpent in the sense of under the curse and sons and daughters of the devil. Jesus said uh, and alarmed the Pharisees who thought themselves to be sons of God and said, ye are of your father the devil. And I would have to think that we all fall into that category until we become sons and daughters of the living God. Amen. Amen. So I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. Good news. It's, it's, this is the first gospel that you have. And so the, the good news, often referred to as the proto-evangelium. And so proto means something that comes first. Proto, evangelium is good news, evangelism, right? It's the good news message, and it's the first sign of good news that you'll find here in the Word. So, uh, good news that you'll, you'll bruise the seed of the woman. Now, there again, we have the virgin birth. Where's the seed of man? The seed of copulation is in man, it's not in woman. So, what is it? The woman has the egg, the ova, but man has the seed of copulation. But this will be accomplished without man. Again, a woman will compass a man and uh, have a man without uh, human intercourse. So between thy seed and her seed, uh, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now let me tell you what the best Bible student in this room right now, the best Bible student, is the devil, right? He's the best Bible student. He knows the Bible. Don't forget that he tempted Jesus with verses, didn't he? Uh, he didn't try his, uh, his constructs and his philosophies. That wouldn't work with the Son of God. So what did he do? He fought him with Scripture. So he's a good Bible student. And you better believe at this point, when he hears that his head, the serpent's head crushed his, his destruction, that he's now taking notes. And uh, he's going to be watching for how this is going to be affected Perhaps that's why it, this passage is arcane. It's hidden. There's some, it demands some interpretation. And, but the devil's good in hermeneutics. I mean, he, he got an A in hermeneutics. And he can, he can expound the word and he knows what it means. And in this case, he knew this meant his destruction. And he said it would be the seed of the woman. So he had it marked down. He knew it wouldn't just be anybody. It would be a new thing that God would do. And uh, so uh, he would bruise, do all he could to kill Jesus before he got to the cross. And even there he bruises his heel and bruises his hands and hopes to extinguish his life, which is impossible because he is quite immortal. He dies a physical death, but he lives forever. He is from everlasting to everlasting. All right. This fundamental truth of the virgin birth, and when I use the expression fundamental, we're talking here about a truth that you cannot reject this truth and call yourself a Christian or call yourself saved. And I mean to emphasize this in our day of apostasy where people today seem to be coming up with all new ideas and of course the internet's loaded with heretics and, and, uh, and they come up with all sorts of different ways of uh, saying what the scripture plainly says. They twist it and they wrestle with the word of God to their own destruction. So uh, we want to announce this doctrine and give you the, the armament that you'll need to defend this truth. Because believe me, there are people that are trying to say, well, it was just, you know, common. This is my problem with The Chosen, which is a film that's on TV. I've never really uh, watched it, but I've, I've seen segments of it and read its script and realize what they do, and that is that they just make up things as they go along, make up stories, and they try to humanize Jesus, which is a, uh, it's an insult to God. Uh, certainly he was human in all aspects, but he's divine at the same time, and when you take the equation and take the divinity out of the equation, what are we left with? Just another man, uh, and uh, it's a dangerous prospect. And that's what the skeptics, the cynics, the pseudo-intellectuals, the higher critics, that maintain that they are believers in God, uh, but they reject the notion of virgin birth, 
bodily resurrection, all the miracles that Jesus did, they said that's not necessary. Uh, what they say is that he was a good moral teacher and uh, God sent him as an example. And that's, that's where they take it. And that's damnable heresy right there, as a matter of fact. So the skeptic's objection to the virgin birth is obvious, and that is it's impossible. And so they, they will maintain that um, objection. And then, of course, they'll look at the Bible and try to retranslate it. Thus the danger of the modern translations. And people that are simple are looking for simple ways of reading the Bible, and they, uh, they're satisfied with simple translations that I think are corrupt and mistranslations for that matter and translations that actually um, do what they can to humanize Christ and denigrate his deity so they say virgin is a mistranslation of the Hebrew word Alma uh, and they say it should be young woman now this started way way back with the uh, RSV that was the first time that they said look we, do, we want to get rid of this King James Bible, and uh, so we're going to, we, we've got a better translation, and they came up with a revised standard version in the early 1900s. It was right after Westcott and Hort came up with their uh, various um, manuscripts, the Vulgate, or the um, Sinaiticus uh, from St. Catherine's Wastebasket, you know, that they found there and the Alexandrian text, and they take these texts and say, oh, these are superior scholastic texts and so forth. And then they, they, they introduce them into the seminaries. And of course, those that teach in seminaries are high-minded and often uh, you know, they buy into what seems to be more sophisticated argument. And so they all bought into the Westcott-Hort theory and basically higher criticism. And it's very subtle sometimes. And, uh, and then these young preachers, boys, uh, feel, feel a call to God. They go into these places, and right away, uh, they're brought into the influence of snakes and wolves in sheep's clothing right, right. that tell them that, uh, well, you know, that uh, inspiration, you know, the main thing is the thoughts are inspired, they'll say, but the wording isn't inspired. And so we have what they consider dynamic equivalence. In other words, we're, we're scholars, and we understand better than you do. You're simple people here. And so we will tell you what it means. And in this case, this word Alma means a young woman. It doesn't mean a virgin. And, uh, and that's, that's where they take it. Very dangerous stuff, I'm telling you. Of course, Satan is subtle, isn't he? And 2 Corinthians 2.11 warns us, uh, lest uh, Satan take an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Don't be ignorant of his devices and his changing the scenery in the word of God. So they say, well, it's a mistranslation. We should have the word young woman there. So, all right, we take Isaiah 7.14, this miracle that a virgin uh, shall conceive and bring forth a son. And they'll say, no, a young woman, they say. This will be a sign unto you. A young woman shall conceive and bring forth a son. That's a real sign right there. I mean... A young woman? I mean, you've got that happening every day, right? Young women have babies every day. There's no sign to that. The sign is if a virgin, and believe me, Satan knows all about it, right? Because, again, he took notes back in the Garden of Eden, and he knew what this would mean. So uh, they say, well, the, uh, the answer to this uh, sophisticated argument would be there's nothing noteworthy about a, a woman having a baby, right? Secondly, in that day, and this is a curious thing, something hard for the modern mind to grasp today because we have taught uh, the, the young generation basically from the 60s and in the 50s, I would say even, uh, that fornication's okay. Nothing wrong with it. And uh, you can have sex before you're married, doesn't mean anything and, and that sort of thing. And it's just a piece of paper. I mean, this is, this is the attitude that people have. And so they violate God's law and they commit fornication and they do it with impunity and they don't want anybody judging them for this. They shack up like animals, and they live this way without being married, and they think it's not a problem and so forth. And of course, then they move on to the next romance and to the next. And some of them have multiple uh, girlfriends all at the same time having sex with several different people. I mean, it's abominable. Right. But uh, we have today the pre preachers, yeah, they're, they're soft-spoken on that. They don't want to say too much because half their congregation is uh, doing this, so they don't want to say much about it. But we're going to say something about it. And, uh, and if it brings conviction, then it brings conviction. It ought to bring conviction and repentance to the heart. At any rate, 
In those days, it was unheard of. In that day, the young woman, women were virgins. Young women were virgins. So the idea, the, the, they're synonyms. So to say a, a young woman uh, and a virgin, that meant the same thing. Uh, that's hard for the modern mind to grasp. But that really was the way it was in Israel. And that's why you can see when Joseph is confronted with a pregnant woman that he is engaged to, there's only one thing to do. Stone her to death. That was the capital law. Now God had permitted thereafter that a writing of divorcement could be given because of the hardness of men's hearts. Because men won't live by what God says. He spares their life in mercy. Nonetheless, he still hates the sin. So, a uh, great illustration when we Genesis 24. The damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, and then we have, neither had any man known her. So, known, of course, is a euphemism in the Bible. When you see know or known, uh, in the context of husband-wife relationship, it has to do with sex. It has to do with intercourse. So, neither had any man known her, known her, Physically and sexually is what this means. So uh, it's a euphemism. So here clearly we understand that the damsel, very fair to look upon, a virgin, Alma, uh, and then even more explanation, so to speak, in the following phrase that uh, comes thereafter here. So we have an appositive, uh, which is a phrase that explains what was just said. A virgin, that is to say, a woman that never laid with a man. So that's the idea of it. Uh, and that's uh, right there in that verse about uh, Rebecca. So uh, this word, Alma, unique Hebrew word for virgin, eight times used in the Old Testament. Uh, so don't let anybody convince you otherwise with their uh, modern scholarship. Never used of married women, and a young woman, maiden of marriageable age, who is a virgin. So that's how it's applied, and that's how lexicons handle the word Alma. So a young woman bearing a child out of wedlock certainly would be notorious, but it would hardly be extraordinary or a sign in a way that would be worthy of God. We can also go, by the way, to what is called the Septuagint. The word Septuagint uh, is taken from the concept of, the, of those that compiled it, 70 scholars that were involved. Now what we're talking about here is at the 2nd century B.C., the Jews now are under domination of the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and, uh, and then his four generals thereafter. So uh, Alexander's goal was to Hellenize the world, in other words, make the whole world Greek, and that would include the Hebrews under his domination. And so uh, many of the Jews now would give up on the Hebrew language and learn Greek. Uh, you were compelled to do so. Uh, some of them would even adopt Greek names like Mark, for instance, or Marcus. Uh, or uh, we see Andrew. Andrew is a Greek name. Uh, and, and Philip, Philip, you know, Alexander's father, Philip of Macedonia. So, so here we have Jews actually using Greek names. That's how Hellenized they had become. They also then took to task the idea that, look, many of the Jews now dispersed amongst the Greek Empire would need to have an available copy of scriptures. So they translated the Hebrew into Greek, and that's what the Septuagint is. It's an Old Testament written in Greek. Uh, and we have this interesting thought, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint, confirms that Alma is best interpreted as virgin. Uh, it translates this verse using the Greek word parthenos. Parthenos. Now you know the the Greeks had the Parthenon, right? And uh, uh, Athena, the, the virgin goddess, was worshipped in the Parthenon. Uh, so we get this expression, or at least a cognate, Parthenos, which means a virgin, uh, rather than Neanus, which would be a young woman, which more generally means a young woman. Moreover, the Gospel accounts in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 both use the Greek word Parthenos. Uh, of Mary and do so in a context that explicitly portrays her as a virgin. So in a sense here, we have the support of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, 
to authorize that word virgin. Now, maybe I'm belaboring the point, but I said this is a fundamental truth. We, we need to be able to defend this truth against modernism. And so that would be the argument we can lay forth. Let's get back to Matthew, though. So then uh, Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him. So, so he's wrestling with what am I going to do with, I've got, I've got a pregnant, uh, engaged woman here. I've never had relations. There's only one thing that could have happened. She, she betrayed me and she had fornication with another man. And, and here she's bringing some story to me. Uh, and so he doesn't believe it at first. And he's contemplating either putting her to death or writing a divorcement. And while he's contemplating the angel, the angel Gabriel comes. Now Gabriel, um, by the way, his name is, uh, at least part of his name is Gibor, isn't it? So Gabriel, El Gibor, Gabor, El, Gabriel, uh, is the angel of the Lord, mighty in power. When, when we see Lucifer falling, he is the anointed cherub that covers. So we have the anointed cherub that covers, but he falls. So he, is what, he was the archangel until he rebels against God. Michael is next in line, and Mark, Michael becomes the archangel. The archangel with the definite article in front of it in 1 Thessalonians. So the archangel. So we would assume there's only one, though uh, I could be convinced that there are two. After all, at the at the mercy seat, aren't there two cherubims whose wings touch and they look in? So could it be that there are two, the only two that I can think of would be Michael and Gabriel. None other really are mentioned in the scripture. So I'd have to say that we have three angels mentioned or denominated in the Bible, Lucifer who fell, Michael who's called the archangel, and Gabriel. And Gabriel comes, of course, to give the first message to Zacharias that we studied a few weeks ago, then to Mary, and finally to Joseph, and calms his anxiety, all is well. Well, kind of. All is well except for the fact, how do you explain this to other people? Now we're rushing to get married. Uh, what's the hurry? All of a sudden they're in a big hurry to get married. They live in a very small town, Bethlehem. So population, uh, what? Maybe a thousand people, maybe less. And uh, so, and everybody knows everybody else, and everybody knows everybody else's business, right? It's like living in a high-rise. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. So, um, so how are you going to get away with this one? All of a sudden, Joseph said, you know what? We're going to get married now. We're not, we're not going to wait. That's not traditional. That's not the way it's done. Why all of a sudden? And right away, wagging tongues started to make an assessment here. And then uh, curious eyes began to notice a, a little bump there in the belly, and Mary's a little heavier than she was before. And they put two and two together and realized, oh, they had to get married. And uh, as a result, there's a reproach upon them. And uh, it's one of the hard things that Mary and Joseph had to deal with, all the while knowing this whole thing was arranged by the Almighty. So Joseph is obedient. I mentioned this morning uh, the glory of this character in the Bible. Now, you could call him Saint Joseph, but you could call yourself Saint, whoever you are. And so if we're all saints, we all belong uh, to, to the Lord, Hagios. We're the saints, the separated ones, sanctified ones. So we could call him Saint Joseph if you want. And some people to this day think if they get a statue of Saint Joseph and bury him upside down in their lawn, they can sell their house in a week. It's Total nonsense and fiction. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And in that sense, I'm saying, we don't want to now deride Mary and Joseph. They are to be honored. They were specially chosen for a task that God gave to them. They're not to be worshipped, nor should we pray to them, nor should we hope that he can sell our house. What we should do is look at their character and model after them. They had simple, childlike faith. They went through and endured what had to be a very embarrassing moment that probably uh, carried through the rest of their life. Their reputation was sullied because of all of this. But so it, it was. And so they were willing to be peculiar people in their time. So Joseph raised up from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife and knew her not. Now remember what I told you about this word, knew, no. This is a euphemism for intercourse. 
knew her not, did not have sexual relationships with her, till, that word is vital to the text, no mistake for any word that's here. All of it carefully constructed by God to let you know that he did not have relations with Mary until, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Uh, as a Roman Catholic, we were taught the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she remained a virgin. Uh, but that's not what the Bible teaches. This verse subtly teaches it. And of course, in Mark's gospel, we see he had brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. and, and also in Matthew later, it'll say that they came together. So uh, came together again, a euphemism is that they had normal marital relationships and produced a family as a result. Certainly no sin in any of this. It was under the, the, the boundaries of marriage. Uh, so it wasn't fornication. So um, the language again, exacting language, uh, clearly announcing and re-announcing the virginity of this birth. So knew her not, didn't touch her until after she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name as the angel instructed Yeshua or Joshua, uh, or anglicized to, from the Greek word, Esos. So, uh, Esos, which is the Greek word for Jesus. We harden the J and we borrow to come up with the name Jesus. But if we go back to the Old Testament, it's Yeshua, Yeshua. Uh, which means, it means in a wonderful way, God's given us salvation, God's gift of salvation, God's salvation. Uh, but the angel also said his name would be called Emmanuel. Now that name is what we call a, uh, an appellation. So an appellation is, is a descriptive name that's given to you. It's, uh, it tells you something of the characteristic of the person. Uh, we might even call it a sobriquet today or a nickname. And people have nicknames today. I often use the uh, illustration from baseball. And uh, so if you know Babe Ruth, you know that he was called Babe, right? But his real name was George Herman Ruth. But they called him the Babe. And uh, they also called him Bambino. And they called him the Sultan of Swat. Those are appellations. They're descriptive of his nature and character. Uh, Joe DiMaggio was called the Yankee Clipper. Um, Edwin Snyder was called the Duke of Flatbush because, you know, he was a Brooklyn Dodger. Would you like some more baseball history? I've got a lot of it right here, as a matter of fact. Okay, so at any rate, those are all nicknames. They're descriptive of who the people were. And so likewise, his name Emmanuel is an appellation describing who he is. The Emmanuel is God with us. And that delights the heart of the believer. We do not have a God that's distant and does not know what we're going through. And uh, an old grandfather uh, up in heaven that uh, you know, just doesn't know what's happening down on earth and so forth. He's got, you know, like the old woman in shoe, has more children. She doesn't know what to do. Uh, we don't have God up there wondering what's going to happen next. And we have a God quite active. In fact, the word history is his story, isn't it? It's his story. And uh, so he's quite active in everything that's happening here below. And even comes to visit earth. Emmanuel, God with us. Now there are some defining places in the New Testament that, that uh, reveals all of this. I like uh, what we have in First Timothy 3.16. Uh, Great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, uh, uh, preached unto the uh, Gentiles and believed on in the world and received up the glory uh, and received up in the glory and believed, preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. So, you know, those segments in, in a single verse tells us the life story of Christ. God manifest in the flesh. Emmanuel. And it's, um, it's a promise that was given to the prophets uh, that God in the midst of you would be mighty. Uh, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. And so he is. And he's come in the midst of us. And that's the name Emmanuel. And in this case, he's come, Emmanuel's come to save us. Yeshua. 
Now it says that they, uh, they came not together till she brought first her firstborn. Until, so that was the, the demarcation. He would not do anything to Mary until after the babe was born. And then after that, then they procreate. They have a family. Now this is where the Bible comes in and tells us these details. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea. Now again, as a Catholic, we were taught the perpetual virginity of Mary. She never, she, she was always a virgin and, and remained a virgin. And then they also uh, have what's called the Immaculate Conception. Uh, everybody knows about the Immaculate Reception. It's amazing to me. And people, th people say, oh yeah, that's Catholic doctrine. That's the virgin birth. That's not the virgin birth. That's the Catholic dogma. It's not a doctrine at all. Nowhere in the Bible does it indicate that Mary uh, was uh, conceived without sin. She wasn't. She was like, as I was, like you are. We're sinful people. Joseph and Mary were sinners saved by grace. It's as simple as that. So they had children afterwards. And now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, his brethren, Jesus' brethren, his brothers, therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, and thy disciples also may see thy works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret. And he himself seeketh to be known openly. And then John gives us his commentary here. If thou do these things, uh, show thyself to the world. And he gives his commentary. For neither did his brethren believe in him. I mean, what a sad thing to grow up in a family with Jesus as your big brother and to reject his claim of divinity. Certainly they saw, they had to see, that he was the perfect child, wasn't he? He was the Joseph, the fulfillment of Joseph. You know, he wore the coat of many colors. He, was, he had to be the Heavenly Father's favorite. And what does that bring forth from a family? Envy. And it comes out in this statement. His brother said, well, if you do these things, in other words, you claim to do miracles and so forth, show yourself. No man does these things and doesn't want to be known. They didn't know anything about the humility of the God-man, did they? Go show yourself. There's no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. Show everybody who you really are. If thou do these things, show thyself and to the world. So neither did his brethren believe in him. Uh, it's a sad fact. I've given you this before, but I think it's a, it's a fascinating study, by the way, about the family tree of Jesus. When you begin to see the interrelationship of uh, the, so many of the 12 that he chose were cousins or second cousins or related in some fashion. Uh, John the Baptist was his cousin. And how all these people were interrelated. Uh, and we're not going to go into this, uh, but what I wanted to show you was, here's Mary and Joseph, they have Jesus. After that, they come together. And once they come together, they have a family. James the Just, Jude, Simon, uh, Joseph, and even sisters who are not named and remain anonymous. This is all seen in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, they said, the son of Mary? Uh, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So these are those that, uh, you know, they tested his claims and they said, Maybe he, he's no different than anybody else. Uh, I mean, he's just a carpenter's son. Uh, how do we accept him as our Messiah? And... Uh, so you can see the doubt that was spread by the devil in the hearts of the unbelievers of the first century, and ultimately they would put him on a cross and crucify him. So we have the, the uh, I think, proof here of uh, the fact that Mary and Joseph, in fact, did come together. Uh, so when his friends heard of it, uh, they went out uh, to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. Now the rumor about Jesus was that he was out of his mind. Um, it was C.S. Lewis that put forth the trilemma. The trilemma is that Jesus was either uh, intentionally lying about who he was, or secondarily, that he was a lunatic. He, he was out of his mind and had delusions of grandeur. Or third, he was the Lord from heaven. So you have those three options. And the trilemma is, is wonderfully alliterated with L's, right? So he's... He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. 
And happily, we found that he is the Lord. But we have now, that was the general theme now. And even his brothers were buying into that. Must be out of his mind. Something wrong with him. So there came then his brethren and his mother standing without and sent unto him, calling him. Now he's inside teaching and they're outside trying to get, pull him out of this. He's out of his mind here. We've got to take him home here and maybe if we give him some days of rest, he'll get over this concept that he's Messiah. And the multitude sat about him. And they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren, they're without, and they seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, or those that are sitting here listening to the preaching is what he's saying. It was a mild rebuke of the filial relationship of brothers, uh, his brothers who did not believe in him. And what is Mary doing in all of this? It's a very curious thing. It truly is. But there's good news. All, all's well that ends well. And his brothers ultimately did come to faith after his resurrection. Find that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. After that, he was seen of James. Uh, so this James is James the less. And uh, this was James, his brother, and the writer of the epistle. And then we have Jude, who was also the writer of the epistle. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So uh, both of them had come to faith after his resurrection. All right, so now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So I've underlined what I think we can explore at this point, and that is the days of Herod the king. Now there were powers in Israel uh, that ruled over them. Daniel said that they would be under Gentile domination, and the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the various powers, the gold, the head of gold, the silver, the brass of the Greek empire, and then the two legs of iron, the Roman Empire and its western and eastern components. So at the time that Jesus is born, the Romans now have dominated the Jews. Uh, so this happened when Pompey came into Jerusalem and conquers Jerusalem in 60 BC and um, leaves the temple untouched, hopes to find the Ark of the Covenant and goes into the Holy of Holies and it's not there. And it's a mystery to this day, and, and only Steven Spielberg figured out where it was and had a great movie and so forth. But nobody knows where it is, obviously. So at the time that Jesus is born, Luke tells us, in those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, this Caesar Augustus was a uh, nephew to Julius Caesar. And in the Ides of March when Julius Caesar was stabbed to death uh, in 44 uh, BC, uh, they had a triumvirate. They had, they, they had to figure out who was going to rule Rome. Mark Antony, Octavius, his nephew, uh, did, and then uh, they had uh, another Severus, a general, which, uh, so that formed the, um, the triumvirate. But ultimately, Octavius rises to power. He has the name, after all. And so uh, he gains the empire and thus changes his name from Octavius to something that sounds more formal, Augustus. And we have a, a, a month named after Augustus, right? He has two months, Octavius and October and August. So, so Caesar Augustus. And he rules from 27 BC to 14 AD. Uh, he sublimates the kingdom uh, no more problem for Mark Antony and Severus, so uh, ultimately takes absolute control. Um, so in our text we find Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great uh, is not a Jew. He is an Idumean. So he is of the lineage of Esau. Jacob and Esau, you know, uh, came forth from um, Rebekah's womb and Isaac, and uh, they... Uh, had every intention of Esau, the firstborn, receiving the great blessings and so forth. But Esau despised his birthright, sold it for a mess of pottage. Mm -hmm. Jacob, when he was born, was holding on to the leg almost to say, you're ahead of me, but I, I'm going to somehow catch up with you. 
Uh, and because of that, they humorously called him Jacob, the supplanter. And uh, he would, in fact, supplant Esau. He would gain the blessing at the end. So he bought the birthright, and then he stole the blessing. And the blessing falls upon him, and the 12 tribes of Israel are born through Jacob. So Esau, of course, um, is outcast, no inheritance. And he goes towards the southern regions beyond the Dead Sea, desert area, and uh, establishes his uh, family and genealogy there. The Bible records it, Esau's generation. And they were called Edomites um, because of the redness of the people. So Herod the Great was an Edomite, at least his father was an, uh, an Edomite. His mother was an Arab. He had no right to the throne. We mentioned it this morning. The only person that would have had right to the throne were those that came through the lineage of Zerubbabel, which meant Joseph. Joseph could have been, or at least was qualified to be a king because he was through that lineage. Whether he would have been the king or not, what's the sense in even speaking about it? The kingship stopped after their captivity. And Zerubbabel wasn't a king. He was a governor, that's all. And so they were nothing more than, um, you know, puppets to the Roman Empire uh, and there was no king and even King Herod wasn't really a king it was a titular king in other words by title only so Herod the Great um, 37 BC to 4 BC uh, he ingratiates himself at the death of Caesar and he ingratiates himself with Mark Antony one of the three in the triumvirate and uh He's married also now into the uh, priesthood family. And his first wife, Miriam, is a daughter of uh, Heracanus, which is the, uh, the, the high priest. And so he's an opportunist, and he gains power by uh, marrying important people. Uh, I mean, didn't John Hines do that? Uh, or not John Hines, but uh, John Carey marries uh, Teresa Hines, right? and uh, becomes an instant millionaire. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, we have the notion of him, you know, finding his way around and uh, ingratiating himself with powers that, that were. And right after Caesar's death, he actually makes an alliance with Mark Antony and as a result, uh, wins for himself the title, the King of the Jews. But it was a bought and paid for title. It was because he had influence with the high priestly family and what the Romans wanted to do was to keep the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. And so uh, this, you want to be the king of the Jews? You are now the king of the Jews. You know, go make sure you get the tax money. Uh, do whatever you want to do to your people. We really don't care as long as we have peace, and you can keep peace. And uh, it was a tyrant. Herod uh, ruled uh, with an iron fist. That's why in the passage before us, when we see that when Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. <laughs> so, uh, and then we have, uh, of course, after Herod the Great dies, in what seems to be, well, a date that is pretty valid is 4 BC, uh, because it's in the Roman Chronicles. In fact, he died on my birthday, March the 13th, a very important day. And Herod, so Herod dies March 13th, 44 BC, or 4 BC, and, um, and that leaves... Um, leaves them in a power vacuum because there aren't too many people as powerful as Herod the Great. None of his sons, they're weaklings. And it will be difficult for Rome to manipulate and keep control of especially Jerusalem. And so uh, the sons inherit. Archelaus becomes the king of uh, the territories of Judah. And um, then we have Antipas, who is the one that beheads John the Baptist, and he has given the regions of uh, um, Galilee and Philip, Ituria, and uh, Lysanias, who was uh, Trachonitis, and some other, and Perea, and some other kind of uh, outposts, which are nothing more than desert pieces of land. Um, and so we have what's called a tetrarchy at that point. Um, they realize Archelaus is a weakling, and so they depose him. Uh, Rome can't have a weakling in Jerusalem. So they put their own man there, called a procurator or a governor. Later it will be the infamous Pontius Pilate. But during the birth of Christ, 
there is uh, one who takes the governorship whose name is Cyrenius and sometimes pronounced with a Q or Quirinius. Uh, so we have Cyrenius who is, becomes the governor of Syria. And he institutes a, uh, uh, and history validates this, he institutes a poll uh, where he's going to find out he wants to register everybody's name and, uh, and all, all of this is so they can ultimately impose a tax uh, 12 years afterwards after the poll is taken and that's why Cyrenius makes the uh, Luke chapter 2 am I boring you with all the history it's, uh, what are you going to say right you want me to show the, the dog uh, I can show you the dogs again right you would like that <laughs> All right. So Pontius Pilate ultimately becomes a procurator, not right after Cyrenius. There are two or three others, uh, but he becomes. Uh, nobody really wants. This is the job nobody wants. Jews aren't easily managed, and so Pontius Pilate has to teach them a lesson almost immediately and crucifies a thousand Jews. Now you know who's in charge, uh, and so he's a brutal man. Even though he was loath to crucify Jesus. He was not loath to crucify Jews. Then, um, in the religious aspects, the Jews retained a certain autonomy, at least religiously, and their leaders were high priests. And it became an office that uh, was almost like a divine right. You'd inherit it. So if your father was a high priest and he was getting old, then uh, you could be the high priest. And in the case of the times of Christ, there were actually, it was co a co-priesthood. You had two priests, <coughs> high priests, Caiaphas and Annas. Jesus appeared before both of them to be condemned by both of them. Uh, and of course, they were, um, they were Sadducees and they were liberals and rejectors of the things of the Lord. Uh, so that sets the, the, the picture here. I wanted to set the picture and um, this division of the kingdom, which is called a tetrarchy, tetra for archy, is nothing more than power, a four-powered structure, state structure, tetrarchy. And uh, if you can see the map well enough, you'll see how it was divided out. And of course, the grand prize was the territories of Judah, and Jerusalem was the uh, uh, was the crowning touch. So. Uh, then the other areas of Galilee that, uh, again, this is where Antipas pretty much at his authority and, and uh, these other outlying areas, Transjordan, which were almost worthless pieces of property. So that's how it all worked out. As you can see here, I'm just kind of indicating with these arrows where each had their territories and their part of the Tetrarchy. Uh, but again, uh, Cyrenius and after Cyrenius, uh, Pontius Pilate. Uh, controlling what is considered the lion's share of the kingdom. So, so now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So we want to look uh, into this. I uh, only have a few minutes here. Here's a map that gives us some indicators of uh, territory and so on. So all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee so he's up here in the territories ruled by Antipas, uh, out of, out of uh, Galilee, out of uh, the city of Nazareth, which was just a small town, uh, into Judea. So they had uh, come down here, probably uh, crossed Jordan and came down the King's Highway, but we don't know, uh, because uh, conscientious Jews would not pass through Samaria. Uh, so we might assume that. This would be a longer uh, uh, way to get to Bethlehem, but in a sense it would be more sanctified. But uh, we'll give them this territory. They came through Samaria, a three, four-day journey, maybe even longer with a pregnant woman and a stubborn mule. So, um, so they, they came down to Bethlehem, the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David, as we well know, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. It says it so simply, but uh, one just tries to take it all in and what that must have been like. Uh, this is fascinating, too, to me, um, as we see the propinquity of Bethlehem to Jerusalem. It's only six miles away, as a matter of fact. And um, you also want to note here that three miles from Bethlehem was a uh, was called Herodium. 
and um, I don't have enough time to develop this. So next week we'll get into what Herodium was, and this was the summer palace of Herod the Great. And you see the, the wonderful irony that's set forth in this. The imposter king living in a palace, and the real and rightful king of all kings, Jesus, born in a, in a manger. So, um, and only a few miles apart, so to speak, where they could act. You, you can easily see Bethlehem from Herodium. And you could see Herodium, which was a man-made mountain. Herod had slaves uh, come in and dig up dirt and, and make this huge mound as, as a defense for him to keep him in his palace and keep him safe. So we'll get into some of the details next week. I'm glad that you uh, came tonight to get some of the history and the, and the background. Uh, we're just setting all the scene so that we can get to the richness of the text. So Lord, I pray tonight that you'll help each one of us here to be good and avid students of the Holy Word of God. We all recognize that this is not a book written by men, but one inspired by God. Details here are important. Words are not placed here arbitrarily. They're placed on purpose. And so every phrase, Lord, is telling us something, giving us light and uh, we want to be the best of students, be able to look at all of the details and ferret out from it that which has significance and meaning. We want to find practical applications. Now, Lord, uh, in what we see here in Joseph's life, Lord, that it's a, it's a life of faithful man. He has no words recorded in the scripture. It was a silent faith uh, and a constant one. And we admire his willingness to just simply be obedient to God, as with Mary as well. These humble servants of the Lord become examples to us. But they would bring forth the promise of the virgin-born Savior of the world. The Shiloh, the one that would come to gather his people. The one that would come and rule as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who would bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. The one who would redeem us to God Almighty. We thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood. You came to seek and to save us. You came to give up your life because there was no other way to save us but that you would give up your life and redeem us. And we thank you for this, Lord. We'll praise and thank you for eternity for this. Now continue, Lord, to look kindly upon our studies here. We've just opened the book of Matthew, and we will be here for well over a year. And we'll be looking at all the glorious details. We're looking forward to seeing the King shining through each page, Lord. To love him more. And that we will see the King in his beauty. And that we will regard him with praise and honor. Lord, I pray tonight for all that are assembled here. For those that heard the word this morning. And that, Lord, you will help us all to be not forgetful hearers, but doers of this good word. Use us in your in your servitude, Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses. May we be used this week to bring uh, the gospel to dark hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to accept the plan of salvation that God has laid forth from the foundations of the earth. And the first point of that plan is that all have sinned. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So begin by confessing your sin before God, that you have sinned against Him. and You can't even recollect all of the times that you've offended Him. He has the record, and that record needs to be expunged. Secondly, it's important to know that God will punish sin. If it goes without atonement, we will pay the ultimate price. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that eternal price is hell, fire, and brimstone. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels.
But Jesus paid the price and made the atonement on the cross. God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. When Jesus died, he said, it is finished. He made an end to our damnation and our debt that we owed to him, paid by his own blood and justifies us before a holy God. On the third day, in triumph, Jesus rises from the dead. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So call upon him today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation.